for Nepal, that this week's 7.3 earthquake was in Cherokee and, and around that region where we trekked and shared the gospel with people who've never heard your name before. We believe that you are in that, God, and that you've got something for this tiny little humble church by your grace. And Lord, we also believe that you are sovereign in our Bible study, Lord, that as we just go by verse by verse through the scriptures, just through the book of James, and, and here we are, last time we were together, we taught James 4, 16, and here we are in 4, 17, and it's a word for us today, for this church, for the call you have on us. We pray, God, that your spirit would come and bring the word of God to bear on our hearts. Humble us to be able to receive and to hear from you. And we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Hopefully you got a little calf stretching in <laughs> as you were standing. Our verse, our title of these scriptures today is the danger of hoarding possessions and ignoring persons. Verse 17 said, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's believed that this was probably a maxim or a routine statement that went around. It's a verse that we all know pretty well, although we may not know it came out of James. We kind of paraphrase it a lot as we speak. And often when we speak it forth, we take it out of context. We kind of strip it of its contextual meaning. I know that I personally have used this verse perhaps to bring undue conviction upon my life over areas where Christ is not calling me to be convicted over. Perhaps in callings on my life or use of Christian liberties. Maybe you've used this phrase in some sort of situation like this. Well, I know it would have been right to pull over and pray for that man in the wheelchair, but traffic was so heavy and I was late to a meeting, so I didn't, and now I'm in sin. Or... Well, God has impressed on my heart that it would be right to cancel my direct TV, but I really want to catch this next season of bass fishing, so I haven't nixed it yet. I'm a filthy sinner. Or, well, I know it's not proper to smoke cigarettes, it's bad for my body, and I know it would be right to quit, so I'll be in sin if I don't. I mean, haven't we used that verse in some capacity, kind of like that, hey, to him that know what's good and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. And we kind of use it to bring judgment on our neighbors and undue conviction on our own heart. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to be prayerful and we need to walk in the light before our brothers and sisters concerning our Christian liberties. But let's not take this verse out of context. You'll note that there is a therefore at the beginning. And this therefore may apply to verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4, but very aptly to the whole book of James so far. We've been learning that we've been saved not because of our good works, but because of Jesus' good works for our good works. Our salvation, which is so great, moves us to living lives full of good fruit because of him and by him. Therefore, the man or woman who says, I believe, I just don't need to do anything. And I'll just sit here and wait for his return. In fact, I'm going to live my life in debauchery and for my flesh. But with this claim that I belong to Jesus and I'll be okay. You're not in a good place. 
The Spirit moves us to this shoe-leather Christianity of James. Loving God and loving people. Doing things because God loves us and not doing things because God loves us. So, just as a test, we're going to reference the book of James so far. James has told us all of the things that we need to go ahead and do because of God's grace. And if you don't go ahead and do them, you'll be guilty of sinning. James is essentially saying, now that you know this and you don't do it, it's sin. For you to read and come week after week after week and study the book of James with this church and yet not count it all joy when you fall into various trials, not receive wisdom by faith in your hard times, not display slowness of speech and swiftness to hear in trials, not be doers of the word but remain hearers only, For you to come to this church and sit week after week through the book of James and yet not be one who earnestly desires to bridle your tongue or to take care of the helpless such as the widow or the orphan or not to treat, treat all men equally but you show favoritism to the rich and lovely person. For you to come here week after week and hear the word of God washing over you and yet you don't show your faith by your works. You don't tame your tongue. You don't forsake worldly wisdom, which is selfish, bitter, and envious. Trading it off for heavenly wisdom, which is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, and able to show good fruits. For you not to lay down your pride and your desire for pleasure and take up humility. And for you not to submit to God, resist the devil, cleanse your hands, purify your heart, grieve over your sin, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, not putting off slandering of your brothers and sisters, not giving of your calendar year to the purpose and plans of God for your limited life. For you, this is sin. It is sin. So don't worry about whether or not you should remove the studs from your snow tires yet and start obeying the word of God. Stop condemning yourselves for enjoying March Madness and repent from bitter slander against your brother and for leaving your homeless sister out in the cold. James has given us plenty to obey God and worship to him. Are you? Are you loving him by obeying him? Even in these things? Charles Spurgeon calls verse 17 a call to immediate obedience. The call to obey God is always an immediate call. It's not a call that we need to take up tomorrow. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown write in their commentary, knowledge without practice is imputed to a man as great and presumptuous sin. So for him who knows the good to do and does not do it, it is sin. God has shown you in the book of James the good to do. This is what we call Sins of omittance. Often we we think of sins of committance. Sins that we commit. God has told you not to do that, but you did it. You committed a sin. But then there's things that God has told us to do, and we don't do it. And so we're not obedient in the action that he calls us to. It's not the bad things that we're doing, but the good things that we're not doing. And we see it all throughout the scripture as just as wicked. In the parable of the talents, there's an individual with one talent 
who's condemned by the master, not because he used that one talent for evil purposes, but because he squandered the chance to do something good with the one talent he had. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite are pointed out not for what they did, but what they failed to do. So tied up in their religious underwear that they failed to recognize a genuine expression of neighborly love would look like taking care of this poor man in the ditch. If you were here at the beginning of today's service, we read the parable in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, the rich man isn't condemned for what he did, but for what he failed to do. He allowed his wealth to screen him from the need of this beggar Lazarus who stood at his doorstep begging his poverty so extreme that the dogs would come and lick his wounds. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus actually tells people who have ignored the poor to depart into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It is sin for you and me not to do the good things God has called us to do. These are sins of omission. And that brings us to chapter 5. It was kind of weird to do one verse in a chapter, wasn't it? It was weird for me to prepare to teach that. (coughs) Chapter 5, six verses. These first few verses have been called a stinging condemnation on ill-gotten gain. Derek Prime, a Scottish preacher, wrote, It's a burst of righteous indignation reminiscent of the Old Testament prophets. It has got a bite and a sting that is absolutely clear and unavoidable. Who's James addressing here, by the way? Look at chapter 4, verse 13. He starts it with, now listen. And he's addressing those who are outside of the Christian community, consumed by what they do apart from the Lord. These are non-believers in chapter 4, verse 13. Now in chapter 4, verse 11, he's addressing brothers. In chapter 4, verse 13, he says, now listen. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, now listen. But in chapter 5, verse 7, he says, be patient, brothers. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, those of you who are rich but squandering that wealth, get ready. Because a time of agony, very similar to that coming from the pit of hell, is coming upon you. Speaking to non-believers who are filling the pews of the church that James is writing to. Now, with that said, it doesn't mean that these verses don't have other application for the Christians here today. James has already rebuked Christian brothers and sisters who were favoring the rich above the poor. So these six verses serve as both a direct rebuke to non-believers who are rich, oppressing the poor and subtle. And it's an indirect warning to rich believers and Christians who are ignoring the poor. At the same time today as we read it, for those of us who are part of a culture that is extremely wealthy, some of, one of the richest nations that's ever existed on the face of the planet, unbelievably rich, even the poorest one of you in this room, unbelievably rich compared to the people of Nepal. We need to examine today whether or not we're engaged in sinfulness, sinful stewardship of the resources that God has given us. There's three dangers of wealth that that James sets forth before us today. First of all, that we've been setting too high a value on wealth. A friend of mine came down from Portland this week to meet with the CPA in town who my wife works for, and he mentioned a story of a CPA previously when he'd messed up on some things and he was really worried about debt that he was going to have, and the CPA, who was a Christian, said to him, 
look, be a good steward, but don't worry. It's only money. It's only money. And so when we've placed too high a value on wealth, and there's a good word for us today, it's only money. Secondly, there's the danger of envying those who have wealth. And third, there's the striving feverishly to obtain wealth. If you listen to the ideas, hopes, and dreams of your neighbors in this community and maybe of your own, all of your dreams end with your hopes of acquisition for yourself. And in this American culture, it primarily ends with your retirement, does it not? Here's what I'm living for. I'm working for, I'm saving for this so that I can just check out of society and go live for myself off in the woods somewhere or on the highway in an RV and then I'm going to die someday. That just reeks with hedonism. That just reeks with selfish ambition and conceit. And it's satanic at heart to distract us from the mission of God to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation and then the end will come. It's a distraction from this world. Yet we let the catchphrase from Jerry Maguire consume our life. Show me the money. For those of you who think you're innocent because you don't have a lot of money, you've got to know that the possession of money is not what's preached against here. It's the love of money, the desire of money, the cons- being consumed with money, even if you're poor, wanting money, bitter against those who have money. That's the root of all evil, Paul tells Timothy. J.C. Ryle writes, it is possible to love money without having it. And it's possible to have money without loving it. We need to make sure that those who have money are careful with it. One of the greatest dangers of wealth is arrogance. Ryle writes again, as the Bishop of Liverpool in an earlier generation, money in truth is one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt. But it brings with it quite as many cares as it takes away. There's the trouble in the getting of it. There's the anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the use of it. There is guilt in the abuse of it. There's sorrow in the losing of it. And there's the perplexity in the disposing of it. We cannot allow money to become our God. It will fail us tremendously. And so verse 1 tells us, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. James has so much to say about the rich, those who desire to be rich and wealthy, or those who have abundant riches in this short five-chapter letter. Apparently, the rich that James have in mind are being shown preferential treatment as they come into the church. They're not generous and merciful to the poor and needy with their resources. They're lusting and coveting for more wealth, for pleasure and luxury, and that's causing wars and fights among the church. If they have some kind of shrewd plan laid out to make more boastful profit with no intention in seeking God's heart or desire for their life or their possessions. And so James says to these people, weep and howl for your miseries are coming upon you. This weeping and howling has the same Greek word used for the shrieks that come from the pit of hell. Cry out loud because hardship is going to be coming upon you. You've neglected the hurting and the needy who've been calling out around you. Soon you will be the one who's hurting and needy, James says. Verse 2 says, your riches are corrupt and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you 
and will eat your flesh like fire. You've heaped up treasures in the last days. Verses 3 and 4 tell us what a noisy passage this is. There are cries of laborers who are not being paid, whose faces are being ground down. And so James 4 brings for us, excuse me, five charges against individuals who are really hoarders. First of all, you've hoarded wealth, you failed to pay, you've lived in luxury, you've fattened yourself, and you've condemned the innocent man. We're going to touch on some more than others today as the Spirit leads. First of all, in verses 2 and 3, as we just read, you have hoarded your wealth. This is not speaking about careful planning and wise use of every penny on the dollar that comes in. This is not wealth that is being shared. Rather, it's wealth that is being stored. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, that one man from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's a very similar statement that many of you have gone through as grandmas have passed away and mothers have passed away. And then there's that little bickering, that's fighting with the siblings and the cousins. Why won't they share this inheritance fairly? I've been there. Even from some of the most Christian families, you're going to have some debate among each other. And Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And whose will those things be which you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There's some key phrases in this text that I believe God wants to convict us in today. As this man shouts out, I will store all my crops and my goods. As he says to his heart, take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And as Jesus says, this is an individual who has laid up treasure for self. For himself. And is not rich toward God. This is not a man who is a wise steward. This is a man who had no plan on sharing or giving. He had prepared it for himself to store it up for himself. The individual stores up his crops and goods and says, I'd rather let it rot than give it away to help the poor. Now immediately as we are hearing this, we can think of scores of people that this applies to, and I wish they would have shown up today. Sure makes us feel better, doesn't it? But the truth is there is a warning to me today and to you today that we are so close to making this man's decisions our decisions. I was so excited to begin to see equipment moving up on the Peter Road, the North Peter Road, north of the the mill. So excited to see something happen with a weed patch up there. What could this be? You begin to see the the land plane go in and the excavators go in and they begin to forming something and shaping something. It slightly has the look of maybe some kind of apartment complex, some housing for the people in Prineville. That that would be good. Maybe some low-income housing. Wouldn't that be incredible? 
My heart began to leap and get excited. But then we began to say, you know what else it could be? You know what shape this is beginning to take? The shape of storage units. We begin to see building after building after building with probably 10 to 20 giant stalls for storing up goods going in on my way home. And you know what? We have storage units already. (laughs) Plenty of storage units for heaping up all of our things that we don't use. Guys, this is so convicting to me. I actually have a room in my basement that was built in there, this giant room with a concrete floor that's just good for nothing but storage. So I built a shelf, and guess what? This huge room is completely chock full of junk I don't use. I can't even get in there to like look around for stuff. Then if you go out in my garage, you can't walk through it without tripping over something. I've got so much stuff, so many different types of bikes for my kids and bikes for myself that I don't use. I've got two saddles that have been sitting there getting moldy for years. They haven't been used in five years. I've got stuff, stuff. When my garage door opens, it flops over in front of that laser beam so that I can't shut my door because of it. And God has been calling my family to repent of this, to live simply. And that any resources that come in, they are not to end with Rory Rogers, to build up his kingdom and to build up my empire, to make my name great. They are to be sold for money. They are to be sold or given away for the use of brothers and sisters around me. So that the world, Psalm 67, so that the world might know his saving ways. That they might praise him, that all the nations would praise him. That they would enjoy him. Psalm 67 goes on to say that the harvest would come in. That the crops would come in. And I've got more crops than to know. I can't can't store all this. And the Lord would say, don't build bigger barns for yourself. Take all that extra and give it away. And the more that we're giving away, the more he's going to bring in so we can give away more. We've got a saying in this church that God has called us to be distribution centers. I mean, God make us (laughs) Amazon.com. You know, God make us that we're going to need one of those drones to come down and we can put stuff in it and then the drone can go off and drop it off. Giving away stuff. That God would bring more in and we'll give it away. And that we don't count our life dear to ourselves, and we're willing to forsake everything that we have. The most beautiful truck with the best looking rims, the, the saddles that's sitting there that it's like, you could get 10 bucks for that. Get the saddles out of here. Those rollerblades that haven't been used since 1992, get them out of here. Let's simplify our life and use these possessions and the harvest and the jobs that give us six figures incomes. If you've got that, that has been designed for the furtherance of the gospel among the nations. Not so that you'd get fat and sassy and puffed up and make your name great among this world. All of the money that we have and all of our possessions... All of the stuff that we buy that we don't need is rotting. There will come a day when all of these things will be burned up with fire. And if you've put your trust in it, you will be burned up too. It's been said your treasure on earth will bring about your torment in eternity. How many of these things do we need in a world where people go barefoot 
can't read or write, have no food to eat. A few years ago, I was in Brazil. I was in Rio de Janeiro. There's huge slums down there run by drug lords. I was at a hamburger shop there, uh, buying hamburgers for, for this band that I was traveling with. And, and this little boy, probably 11 years old, comes up to me, just filthy dirty. And he has wounds all over his feet. And he's going through the streets without shoes on. And he didn't even say anything. He just stood there. And I bought this kid hamburgers until they were coming out of his nostrils. I was like, you want a suco de laranja? You want an orange juice? You want a strawberry juice? You want a hamburger? Like, where are you? Like, like come sit with me. You know, I want to give you hope in Christ. And my heart broke for this child. The resources that we've been given have, have not been given to end in our closet. I've got so many clothes in my closet. Lindsay has less clothes than I do. All right? And I still go shopping for clothes. And every year I go through and I go, if I haven't worn it in the last year, it's going to Goodwill or it's going down to the neat repeat or whatever. If I haven't worn it in a year. And I, like two giant black garbage bags, like, get it out of here. But man, may we say, what's my, what are my best things? What could be used? There's a brother in the church, you know, he, look at him. He, he needs some clothes. He needs some clean clothes. I want to give him my good, clean clothes. I want to go buy him clothes. There's a difference between storing our things up and sharing our things out. There's a difference between careful planning and wrongful acquisition. John Calvin says, God has not appointed gold for rust or garments for moths. On the contrary, God has designed them as aids to human life. May he give us that vision. All that we have are to help human life. The things the rich trust in and enjoy are full of corruption and corrosion. The riches are corrupt, meaning that they perish, they putrefy. Literally, they decay with an offensive smell. Their garments are moth-eaten, ragged, and tattered. Their gold and silver are corroded. The King James Version, they are cankered and rusted down. Now, neither gold or silver rust, but James is saying they are temporary. Their corrosion will be a witness against them and will burn them with fire. You can just picture a rusted, corroded piece of gold in a man's hand eating away at him. One newspaper article said that money can be hazardous to your health. Two medical researchers at the University of Louisville have been looking into the question and have found that 13% of the coins and 42% of paper money carry disease producing organisms. Small denomination coins and bills are more dangerous because of their rapid turnover. The complete Harper's index says that 97% of all paper money in the US contains traces of cocaine. And so when James says your gold and your money is going to eat away at you literally get a microscope. Psalm 14 is the psalm that we studied this Wednesday night. And it says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But the literal translation of this is, the fool has said in his heart, no God. No God. This is not merely theological atheism. This is what we call practical atheism. I know there's a God out there. Maybe you're a deist. Like, there's a God out there, but he's removed from society. And they say, no God. And maybe you're here today and God is 
His Spirit in this place, in this time, has called us here to hear this message and to be generous stewards of the resources. And would you say, no, God? What are these people? These people are corrupt, the psalm says. They've done abominable works. There is none good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They've all turned aside. They've together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. If you start to kind of get prideful in your heart and say, well, I'm kind of good, or I know this person that's pretty good, and so the Bible's wrong here, the psalmist wants to make sure you know as he repeats in verse 3, no, 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 there's none good, no, not one. When you say no, God, as we did from the beginning in the Garden of Eden and every man has since, no, God, you are corrupt. The rich man who is a practical atheist who would not honor God with their wealth and would say no, God, to God, being haughty with their abundance, they have shown their depravity. And their riches will be shown as corrupt as well. Now the question must be asked, are all riches bad? Is James using a blanket condemnation of the wealthy here? Well, we know the Bible enough to know that James is not blanket statement saying money itself is evil. It's been said, don't knock the rich man. When was the last time you were hired by somebody who was poor? We're thankful for the rich man. James knew his Bible well enough to know Proverbs 10.22, the blessings of the Lord make one rich. And he adds no sorrow with it. He knew Deuteronomy that says, who gave you the ability to get money and wealth? God did. God brought the wealth. It's our sin that brings the trouble. And our abuse does not take away proper use of money. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, the Sermon on the Mount Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy nor where thieves do break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I remember reading this passage one Sunday as a youth pastor and I was told that I was going to be preaching to the big service, we called it, all of the adults. I was like, well, what am I supposed to teach on? And the Lord brought this passage before me. Now, often as a preacher, you don't get to teach on something without living it out. And I came to this passage, and the Lord put on my heart that since my dad had died, I'd been packing around from house to house, moving around with totes and totes of my dad's clothing. Mourning and grieving and smelling them and missing him and laying them out on the bed and remembering his size. I also packed around saddles and I packed around horses I had three horses that I had to move out of Lakeview and bring up to the valley where I was a pastor where there's not many places to keep horses and so I kept my horses in Brownsville where I would drive an hour one way to go check on them a few times a week and to make sure that they were well shod and well fed and the vet bills and everything and I began putting so much money into paying for the, the feed and the vet bills. And then I'd, put, I'd spend hours shoeing the horses. And then I'd go back like in the middle of the week and they'd throw in a shoe. And, ah! and it just was a lesson in futility for me. And the Lord said, Rory, your heart is here on earth. 
You need to lay up your treasures where moth and rust can't destroy. Thieves can't break in and steal. Worms can't come in and destroy the animal or, or, or parasites or, or West Nile virus or whatever. Give these things to me. And that week I was teaching on this and I put my horses up for sale. To teach to the people, you know, we got to lead, right? We got to put these things up for sale. Guess what I was planning on doing with the money? Getting a dirt bike. <laughs> yeah, ween, 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 right? And just praise God for his grace. And I know you guys have been there, but you're looking on Craigslist. You're looking, you know, you're looking. You got a wife that's a voice of reason speaking into your ear. You know, we have a child coming. You're going to die. Don't do that. And the Lord moved on my heart to donate all the money from these horses to the building project at Calvary Chapel Corvallis. That this was going to be a beacon of hope. This was going to be a place where disciples were made. And I wasn't going to be making disciples on a one-man motorcycle. Get a two-man motorcycle, you're in a different place. Get two motorcycles, you're in a different place. Another thought out there for you guys. But don't lay up your treasures here because they will decay. Don't let your heart be down here. Matthew 6, 24 says, this is fighting something right now. <laughs> says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot serve God in possessions. Jesus brings it down here to a heart issue of worship and idolatry. And if your heart is tied to these things on this earth, you have put your trust in them, you put your hope in them, and not in the Lord. This is idolatry. This is practical atheism. Making money a God, something to be served, something that we put our hope in, this is idolatry. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, and these will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men into destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrow. You need to know that money itself is not the evil. It can be used for many incredible things to further the kingdom of God, to show the love of God through the gospel to a lost and dying world. Money is not the root of all evil. The desire to be rich and the love of money is the problem. In the same passage, 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or prideful, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. And this living God, he gives us richly things to enjoy. That's wonderful. Don't hear me wrong. The Ecclesiastes says, it's good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of it all and the labor for which he toils all the days of his life, which God's given him. Verse 19 of Ecclesiastes 5 says, every man to whom God's given riches and wealth and given to him power to eat, to receive his heritage, rejoicing in his labor, this is a gift of God. But you can't act like that's the only verse in the Bible. 
Because the Bible goes on to say, enjoy these things, but then use them as an avenue to get the message of the gospel out there, to spread it out, to share these things. Paul tells Timothy in the same passage, 1 Timothy 6, 18, let the rich people do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. James tells us that the one who has an idolatrous heart towards their wealth and possessions will be consumed by their wealth and possessions. The rusting, decaying gods of this world will eat your flesh like a fire. It's a figure of hell. Consuming you is white phosphorus on your skin. Proverbs tells us that he who trusts in his riches will fail or fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. James tells us that you have heaped up all of these treasures in the last days. It sounds a lot like the people of Babylon living during the book of Revelation. God graciously reminds him that we're on his time, where money tells us that we're living for this world here, for the temporal things. Verse 4 says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You could do a whole other sermon on how unjustly we treat the people who have labored for us. The artisans and the builders who work on our home, who we, who we make buy the supplies for their labor, and then we fail to pay them what's due to them. And their cries reach the ear of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. But that's for another time and another place, I feel, for today. Verse 5 tells us, You've lived on the earth as in pleasure and luxury. You've fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Another heir of the people that were reading the book of James is that they've lived in luxury. Now, the luxury here isn't condemning the fact that you may have bought a cashmere sweater, but that you've lived your life delicately and you've pampered yourself. You've set your life in such a way as to give yourself over to the wanton indulgence of your senses. So all the things that make your life cozy and comfortable and fine and dandy become the pursuit of your existence. And it is that life which James, under God's instruction, writes about. Doesn't this verse seem to have the sting of an Old Testament prophet? Read what Amos wrote in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 in the NIV version. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. So kind of a good word for us today, notable men in the foremost nation. It's kind of to Americans today. Go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to the east of Hamath and go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, and you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Man, this is like so convicting to me. I'm thinking of all the Bed Bath & Beyond perfumes that I bought my wife, and they're just like, one squirt, two squirt, put them in the cupboard, and then that's where they've been for the last seven years, you know? <laughs> Buying the finest of lotions, eating the finest of calves, and letting it rot in my refrigerator because I only ate half of my portion. 
You strum away on your harps like David. It's a good thing you have six guitars. You need those. And improvise on musical instruments. You drink, oh, we've read this part. Look at verse 7. Therefore, you will be among the first to go in exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. It's hard to hide from that. Many of us know Ray Stevens is kind of a hilarious comedian singer. The day the squirrel went to berserk in the first self-righteous church. It's a great YouTube video. you got to watch it. But he was also a famous country music singer back in the, in the 50s and 60s. And he wrote a song that was an incredible hit, but they wouldn't play it on the radio stations because the lyrics were too spot on. He sang, itemize the things you covet as you squander through your life. Bigger cars, bigger houses, term insurance for your wife, Tuesday evenings with your harlot, and on Wednesdays it's your charlatan analyst. He's high upon your list. You've got air-conditioned sinuses and dark, disturbing doubts about religion, and you keep those cards and letters going out while your secretary's tempting you. Your morals are exempting you from guilt and shame. Heaven knows you're not to blame. The chorus is, you better take care of business, Mr. Businessman. What's your plan? Get down to business, Mr. Businessman, if you can, before it's too late and you throw your life away. You guys... I'm no better, I'm no different than you. I have passions and desires just like you guys. I own a home, sort of. The bank kind of does, mostly. <laughs> I fertilize my lawn. I try to plant a garden. Dies, like, right away. I don't know what my problem is. I grew up on a farm. <laughs> We're in the process right now of refinancing our house. And we fasted, and we prayed, and we spoke with the elders, and we just don't want our life to be consumed but we have this house that's unfinished. We've got floors tearing up. We've got a, a concrete basement floor, things like that. And we're just like, Lord, you know, <clears throat> we don't want to be consumed by this. And we know that that can happen. We want this home to be a home that's used to make disciples and to send out missionaries and to be a place where we can grow in the word, making disciples of my kids and making disciples of others. And through fasting and prayer and wise counsel, the Lord has said, you know, it's okay, move forward with this. But here's how amazing he is. In all this pursuit and living before the Lord like this, like whatever you want to do. We had our house appraised this week and it came back for way less than it was supposed to. Cutting the amount that we were going to put into our home by half. So that all the things that we were like, we're going to do this and this, and you might, oh yes, everyone's going to love this. And blah, 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 you know. The Lord's like, you're not going to do that, that, or that. You're going to do these things that are going to be essential for your home. And you know what? That's our heart. You guys, in the five years that we've owned this home, we've probably had six different families live with us. Families or single people or whatever. Homeless people, people in their cars. And I'm not bragging at all. I know many of you have done this too. But we want to lead by example. We want to show you guys that the homes that we have, the possessions that we have, they are not ours. And if our brother is sleeping out in the snow and in the cold, I don't care if he's a felon. I don't care if he's been to prison. We'll be wise. But James has brought such great conviction upon us, hasn't it? We need to show our faith by our works. The truck that I've got is not mine. Jason called last week, we need a fundraiser, we need a truck to haul slash piles and blah, blah, blah. 
It's like, come get that thing. Drive it like you're mad at it. He didn't. He took Kevin's new Tundra. But other than that, no, I'm joking. (laughs) And you know what's so amazing? God's provided Kevin through his new business, a new Tundra, 015, beautiful. And you know what? Kevin doesn't even care. He's just so distant from this thing. He's like, don't even talk about it. This is like for work. This is part of this Highline. He's like, I'm enjoying it. It's great. But you know what? I'm not going to be owned by this thing. This is going to be used for the kingdom of God. One of my closest friends, I know that that's his heart. How about you? With your things, with your stuff, with your home, with your planning, are these things that are going to be used to love God and to love people? Because the people that James is writing to have just fattened themselves up for the day of slaughter. Alistair Begg says it's like unwitting beasts. These greedy misers are fattening themselves quite happily unaware of the fact that with every munching bite, they were making themselves more ready for a visit to the slaughterhouse. I believe that's our culture. Alec Matias says, James is in this, issuing a warning to any who might be attempting to follow the example of these people and thereby imperil themselves on the day of judgment. A very witty man, he goes on to say, Oh, to be a thin cow on the day the butcher comes. In other words, you'd better have your ribs showing than to have your belly bulging. A phrase that we use a lot around here is, we want to be able to feel the squeeze so that other people don't feel the pinch. Man, don't you look at those images of people that we know and love, and they are just being pinched. They are being hurt. They are wounded. They want to die in the next quake. And for us to really empty our savings account right now, it would be a squeeze. But we would survive. We would survive, and then we would start saving up again so that we could send out again. Amen? Verse 6, and we close, and we have the worship team come back up. Holy crikey, I'm sorry. Verse 6 says, You have condemned You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. The hoarders were people that would condemn innocent men. And it was known in the Jewish world to deprive a person of their support was the same thing as murdering them. And as we close today, I want to read Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 through 20. And we can stand together just to prove to you that I'm ending. Remember chapter, uh, what we've read today, verse 3, how it says you've heaped up treasure in the last days. The last days when you study theology are considered anywhere from the time that Jesus um, came in his first coming to when he's coming back in his second coming. Okay, These last days, Peter would call it the last days in Acts chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 1 would call this the last days that we're living on. You've heaped up treasures in the last days. Revelation writes, Jesus is writing a letter to what's called the lukewarm church in the last days. And he says in verse 15 of Revelation 3, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, 
miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Here's the good news. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Here's a word for us today. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he to me. Let's not be haughty in our riches, America. We've got riches. Let's come to Jesus who gives us gold without price, white garments that have been freely paid for by Jesus to cover up the shame of our nakedness. And today, if you would let him, he wants to put eyes have on your eyes that you could see him. That you could have your heart transformed as ours have been. In the last year, in the last few years, in the last months, God has just taken us from just every time we're trying to cling to this world and live for a little bit for this world. He's just like loosening our fingernails off of that grasp. That's a work of the spirit. That's not something my flesh wants. You can cry out for that today and he'll do that in you. And I just feel that today the Holy Spirit wants to meet us in an incredible way. You remember Easter Sunday? We were here for like two and a half hours baptizing people. I've never needed a drink of water while baptizing people before. And there was a dude like bringing me cups of water. I'm so thirsty. Just baptizing people. I'm tired. Oh, my back. Praise God. People in large churches are like, you baptized how many people? I'm like, God moved in the hearts of people. 44 people came to be baptized that day. This last weekend, I spoke at uh, Shasta Lake for 100 college students, and I taught them about the unreached people groups, people who have never heard the name of Jesus, that over half the world's population are unreached with the gospel. And in that time, the Holy Spirit fell So that over a third of them stood up and came down and said, this weekend God has brought me to this lake to call me in my life to move to unreached people groups and to be spent for people who've never heard the name of Jesus. Then within that group and another probably 50% came forward and said, I'm to continue my college education at OSU so that I can get rich as a pharmacist, as an electrical engineer. I'm to get rich, but not for myself. God is calling me to vocation as mission. These are future professionals. These are dental assistants. These are dentists. These are people who are going to be professionals and they're going to have the blessings of God poured out upon them. And then the following night, we cried out that Jesus is the motivation as he was sent out from heaven to be a missionary. But he's also sent us the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do this. This is a tall order, isn't it? And we had everybody moved by the Spirit, came forward, and cried out that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon them. That they would have power and boldness, like living water, like the fire of God, to have power to go forth to preach the gospel where they might be killed for Jesus. And then there was a prophecy spoken out. And in this time, we were reading about when the Holy Spirit falls upon people in the book of Acts, And we said, it seems the Holy Spirit has fallen upon us. It says here they spoke in tongues and prophesied. 
Let's make opportunity for this. And college students who are professionals, professionals, future professionals, begin speaking out in tongues and begin interpreting tongues. And they begin praying for the sick there. And one girl who had an extra bone spur jaunting off for her leg was healed so that the bone spur wasn't there anymore. And a prophecy was spoken that if anybody doesn't feel it, they're just not feeling it, come in the middle of this group of college students and we want to pray for you that though you're cold, you might be made hot. And about 13 college students come in and they're like, my name's Riley, my name's Lindsay, my name's Russ. I don't care really about anything that you're saying, but you can pray for me. And so we just prayed for him. Charles Spurgeon says, if your heart beats cold, then hammer it on the anvil of prayer until it gets hot. And we prayed for these people. Pretty soon they start praying. They start crying out. And more people start coming in. I'm cold. Start crying out for the heat from the Lord to warm their heart, to care about the things he cares about. The Holy Spirit is moving, you guys. I hope that you'll let yourself be a part of it. And as we close in this song, just as we have our hearts knelt before God, I'm going to have Kevin grab two baskets that are back there behind Aaron. Aaron, why don't you grab them? And we're going to bring one basket up here and one basket up here. And in the same way that we made public declarations that we believe the word of the Lord came forward and we were baptized, we're going to say we believe the word of the Lord for us today as a church. I just sat through the longest service of my entire life. But I believe that God is, some of you are like, I was here at Easter, not the longest service of my entire life. I saw your look, Rhett. I believe that the Lord would have us today make bold steps that today during this message, he brought things up on your mind that you're to sell, that you're to get rid of, an amount that you're supposed to give. You've been thinking about it. I know you have. The Holy Spirit's been moving here. We're not going to say give 10%, give 20%, give 5%, whatever. You give as the Holy Spirit purpose on, on your heart. And right now, just as in Acts chapter 4, as the Holy Spirit fell on that church, people came and brought their possessions and laid them at the feet of the apostles. And then the apostles distributed the wealth wherever they saw need. And this is going to be a work of the Spirit in our church where this just opens up our hearts as a church, as a congregation, to be generous givers. That the barometer of our heart as a church might go from not really warm towards the Lord to totally hot for the Lord. And we're going to show with our pocketbooks. Don't feel manipulated. Don't feel guilted. Just as the Holy Spirit says, hey, this, this is what I'm calling you to. I know how it is. You don't come with like cash in your wallet. I don't. I don't ever have cash. And sometimes it goes by and I'm like, I got $1. I'm putting it in. And then I'm going to go talk with my wife about what. That's okay. Whatever. As the Holy Spirit would lead today. But I also felt that the Holy Spirit wants you to commit to something. And that, uh, Jason, if you can grab the slips of paper back above the offering box and grab some pens out of the tables out in the foyer, we're going to bring pieces of paper up here and we're going to have pens up here. And just as the Holy Spirit is moving, as his word has gone forth, this is the word of God for us today. These are the connections that he's given us. He's calling us to this as a life, as a manner of life, as a church. That you're to just put down on that piece of paper, like, I don't have the money with me or whatever, but I just feel like God is telling me, I'm supposed to give this. And you just step in faith. And what this is going to do is it's going to cause you, like when you're baptized and everyone sees it, this is going to cause commitment and action in your life. Only feel, only if the Lord's calling you to. 
But you might say, God has called me. Russell shouted out at this college retreat. He's a little eight-year-old. He goes, God's calling me to sell my Xbox. He's eight years old and a bunch of college students, and he's in the front going, he's bawling. Because 11,000 people groups have 6,000 of them that are going to hell without ever hearing the gospel. He's bawling. God's calling me to sell my Xbox. And everyone's like, woo! What's God calling you to sell? You might put that and just give it to the Lord. Maybe you just need to write it down and put it in your pocket. Maybe you need to write it down and give it to your spouse or your friend and say, this is what God is calling me to. Or maybe you want to write it down and just put it in the basket and say, you guys, Holy Spirit's moving on me to sell this possession, to have a garage sale. It might be simple. Like I'm supposed to have a garage sale and the proceeds are supposed to go to Nepal or the proceeds are supposed to go to the church, whatever. But God is calling us to be givers. And as the Holy Spirit leads, let's let him move. Let's obey. Do you guys remember that feeling when you got baptized on that Sunday? You're in your Easter best. You didn't bring your swim trunks and you didn't bring your towel. And you come up and you get in this nasty water that's had 40 people in it. I'm not going to lie to you. I saw stuff in there. Okay? But you came up and you plunged in because you believed God. Amen? Come plunge in. Come plunge in. One last little thing. Paul says that before you gave your money, you gave your heart first to the Lord. And that's the most important thing. And maybe that's what you would write on the paper today. I don't know what to give possession-wise. I don't know. And that's okay. But maybe you'd say, he's calling for my heart. I'm giving my heart today. As you feel led Bring the checks, bring the coins, bring the penny in your pocket. He'll multiply it. Come write as the Lord would have you write during this last song.